there are still lots in Dallas with no water and sewer service. And I have actually met people. She said she was purchasing some land and the plot next to it had water and sewer service on each side, but her plot did not. And so those plots of lands are essentially worthless because you know, who can afford to put in water and sewer service um, when they're buying a piece of land? So it really um, is a, a huge barrier to improving these areas. From the boycott of Negro Achievement Day at the State Fair of Texas back in 1955 to the 1964 protests at a downtown Dallas Piccadilly's, the black community in Dallas is no stranger to intolerance. During Black History Month, we're going to take a look at a form of financial discrimination that's often overlooked. I'm Bailey Friday, and Texas wants to know, how has redlining affected the Black community in Dallas? We did a comparison of Dallas with New York City, Los Angeles, and Chicago. And we found that the compared to those cities, Dallas had the worst infrastructure condition overall across mm -hmm. the city and the most inequity in terms of low-income versus high-income cities. Barbara Minsker, a professor at Southern Methodist University, conducted a study on infrastructure deserts in Dallas. You found that the majority Black neighborhoods are 4.6 times more likely to be infrastructure deserts than majority white areas. What is an infrastructure desert? So infrastructure deserts are modeled after the same concept as food deserts. So they are low-income neighborhoods that have highly deficient infrastructure relative to other neighborhoods across the city. One of the things that we looked at, both Chicago and Dallas had the most prominent inequities. New York and Los Angeles were, were much less so. And so we actually pulled up maps to look at the racial and ethnicity composition of, of all four cities. And we found that those lines of segregation are still very strong in both Dallas and Chicago, even though it's no longer legalized segregation, it's still there. And yet we saw in New York and LA that there's, that segregation lines were blurred. There was much more of areas where there was much more mixed race and ethnicity. And so my hypothesis is that in New York and, and Los Angeles, the cost of living there has been so high for so long that there's been much more infiltration into these, you know, formerly low-income, predominantly Black or Hispanic neighborhoods that we have not seen in Chicago and Dallas yet. So with that infiltration probably came more infrastructure investment, probably more gentrification happening. Minsker mentioned lines of segregation. So what is redlining? The term was coined in the 60s to describe discriminatory banking practices affecting the Black community. When you have a certain demographic of people located within a certain neighborhood or zip code, a bank chooses an option to draw a line. That's James McGee. He's the president of the Southern Dallas Progress Community Development Corporation. That line is called an assessment area, either includes that area or exclude that area from an assessment area map standpoint. Or they can draw it to include that area, but the financial services, in a sense, are still, they're not penetrating that area. They're avoiding that area from advertisements, from locations, from 
the lending data as far as loan products, no activity from that financial institution is going on within that given area. When the Homeowners Loan Corporation was making mortgages to people across the country, and they went through and they raided neighborhoods, and they called them A through D, A being uh, the best neighborhoods, and D being what they called hazardous. And in those neighborhoods, no mortgages were given at all in that category D. In the category A, up to uh, 90% of the value of the home, you could get a mortgage. And then B and C were somewhere in between. And those category Ds were based on race, essentially, and there were predominantly Black neighborhoods that were not allowed to get mortgages at all. Just in case you didn't know, gentrification is when new development and more often money comes to a neighborhood and pushes all the old residents out. If you look at a place like Bear Street, where the city invested millions of dollars with some federal funding as well, but it's like a facade along this street and the rest of the neighborhood is just the same. And we don't have that kind of economic vitality that's built from the neighborhood themselves. The community wants to be engaged and they want to help start businesses in their neighborhoods. How do we make that happen? Another thing is as we're seeing gentrification in some of the neighborhoods, developers just coming in and building these giant tract houses one after another right next to very modest older homes that were low-income neighborhoods. The real estate taxes on those homeowners are going through the roof because of this gentrification. They're going to get pushed out. They're not going to be able to afford it. The rents are also going through the roof because those real estate tax increases filter up through the landlords. So how can we cap that on those low-income housing? We don't have those policies in place right now to do that. We really need it. Redlining, gentrification, and other discriminatory practices were identified as roadblocks for the Black community as long as 50 years ago. But how long have the practices been in place in Dallas? More than 60 years. I mean, easy. Probably going back a little bit longer than that. I mean, so some of the original part of Dallas, the South Dallas Fort Park area, you know, was redlined back in the 30s. And so for, for some financial institutions, they still exclude it today. And then under segregation, we also had that um, Blacks at that time were not allowed to go into businesses or restaurants um, that were, they, they had to create their own businesses, their own neighborhoods and services as well. And in many cases, they had to build their own buildings. And so if you look at Freedman towns, which were built for freed slaves, like the 10th Street Historic District in Dallas, there were no resources given for infrastructure. In many of those neighborhoods, there was no running water um, or sewer service in many cases well into the 1960s and beyond. So there was also, because there were no mortgages given, there's no intergenerational wealth building where the, um, you know, as homes gain value, those families gain wealth that then passes on to the next generation. And that was not able to happen. According to CNBC, generational wealth refers to any kind of asset that families pass down to their children or grandchildren. Because of practices that barred Black people from getting loans, mortgages, and other things to build wealth, the effects are seen generations later. 
it's not anything new to, to our community. The appraisal gap as far as appraisers or appraising homes that are owned by non-minorities higher than that same similar home that are owned you know, by minorities. And you take that to even be more enhanced when you get an area full of minorities, you know, those homes are undervalued. So that hurts you as far as when you're selling your home, sometimes you're buying a home in that community, or perhaps when you're, you know, trying to fix up your home by taking out a home equity line of credit. My class took a field trip to the Bontown neighborhood with Cindy Lutz, who is a former Habitat for Humanity executive. And she told us the stories about that Habitat has had with with putting in housing, affordable housing for families. And in that particular, she showed us a street where they had to put in a fire hydrant, they had to put water and sewer on. There were already four or five existing houses that had no water and sewer service and no fire hydrant for fires. Um, And this was in the late 1990s. So they had to raise the money. And she said at that time, there was one homeowner who was lugging water in buckets to flush her toilets and had been doing this for 20 years. And the city had told them that, well, the pipes, the, the pipe system had collapsed and was never repaired. So that's just one example of, of the kind of, of bad infrastructure in some of these neighborhoods. The last factor then is, is the magnitude of the problem where there's, there's just so much needed and not a lot of political power in these neighborhoods to try and, and generate change. And the big comment I've heard as I've talked about this work is that it would be too expensive to fix the problem and that it would lead to gentrification if they did fix it, which would displace those residents. People who don't live in an infrastructure desert may wonder why they should care about this, but your research indicates that these deserts impact the whole city. Can you tell me a little bit more about how? So really the whole city bears the cost of these areas of the city that are economically unproductive. They are not generating tax revenue. There's poor access to jobs. There's no or little internet service. There's a lot of barriers to development and then also less resilience to disasters. With these deep-rooted systemic issues and a lack of awareness about these issues, what can be done now and how can improving these areas become a priority? I think one of the most important is to prioritize infrastructure investments based on the needs and not just the condition of the infrastructure. And the city recognizes this. I've had a lot, I spent a lot of time with them after these results came out. They're very concerned. And they do have a new emphasis on equity. So they're bringing equity into how they prioritize. But right now it's primarily done at kind of a, you know, a certain area of the city based on the um, predominant race and ethnicity categories, the condition that they understand, the areas that are have worse. But it's more of a, um, you know, let's make sure we're making more investments in these areas as opposed to actually looking at the residents' needs and saying, well, what do people really need? And rather than looking just at those high-level statistics, which are important, to begin to use the today's tools of of crowdsourcing, of going out through nonprofits, going out through agencies that work with people on the ground. 
So we have the contract for the city of Dallas home repair program. It's a program that we covered the, the entire city of Dallas, the focus areas on Southern Dallas. It goes up to $5,000. There's no lien against your house. Uh, it's like I said, it's no, it's not a loan or anything like that. You do have the income qualify to, to be part of that, but it covers the emergency items that may need fixing, particularly in, in your home. And example, a lady, uh, older lady, hot water heater went out and we completed that. Uh, some of the holes in the roof due to the storms, we completed, you know, that or even some of the, the holes on the outside of the home in which animals were coming into one lady's house. I mean, so there's a merit of things, but, you know, basically nothing cosmetic, more of emergency repairs. And that extends the life of that homeowner. Most of these homes are paid off as for, as you know, them being able to live and maintain their home in a safer environment. There's areas where people on wheelchairs are riding in the middle of the street because there's no sidewalk for them to travel on safely. And there's also areas with no crosswalks and areas um, with other infrastructure issues. And if the kids are not able to travel safely to school, then you're going to have more problems. I had a, it was kind of a major road that I was driving on in Southern Dallas. And there was somebody in a wheelchair and they had a big orange flag at the top of their wheelchair and they had a, an orange vest on the back of the wheelchair. So it was pretty obvious that they had to ride out in the street fairly frequently. And there they were going along the side with a lot of traffic because the sidewalks were not possible for them. So I think that's a, a big issue. I think for a local municipality level or, or county or even school district, the city of Dallas has set the example. As far as they late last year, they got the responsible banking ordinance passed. And so whoever holds the, the city's deposits, they have to, in a sense, you know, when the city of Dallas asks them what they're doing, they have to report, you know, to the city. Um, and so it's, you know, a form of the, that financial institution has to be good stewards of the city's money. And that can kind of help further uh, loan. As we're trying to revitalize some of these neighborhoods that have been so neglected, to do that in a very inclusive and, and holistic kind of way. So thinking about not just the infrastructure, but what does this neighborhood need as a whole to thrive? And the city is, is doing some of those housing and urban development neighborhood revitalization strategy areas that looks at infrastructure, housing, economic development, public facilities, assisting homeowners. In some of these areas, you have people who have homes that are very run down and, and they don't have the resources to fix them up. So being able to give them the money to help to fix that. And it's really important to do that in a way that thinks about the whole picture I'm Bailey Friday at News Radio 1080 KRLD in Dallas, Fort Worth. Thank you so much for joining me on our podcast, Texas Wants to Know. If you liked the show, please give us a rating and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was produced by Chris Blake and Savannah Jones. Original music by Michael Eisenstein. Editorial support from Cooper Mall. Odyssey's managing producer for national news podcasts is Myron Kaplan.